with Feel Good Music by Day, relaxing music by night. This is Inspire Radio. Be happy, be inspired. Welcome to the Inspire Radio podcast. This podcast is an opportunity to listen again to one of the many inspirational and thought-provoking interviews first broadcast on Inspire Radio. Inspire Radio brings you inspirational interviews, news of events, workshops and seminars, plus great music too. Online, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, Inspire Radio is your truly feel-good radio station. For more information and to listen to Inspire Radio, why don't you check out inspireradio.co.uk. Check out our Facebook page too, where we've got details of events on there. Our Facebook page is at Inspire Radio UK. Now sit back and enjoy this Inspire Radio podcast. With inspirational guests from across the world, this is Inspire Radio. Hello and welcome to Inspired Conversations with me, Ruth Owen. And today my guest is Eric Edneeds. Now, Eric is a Canadian, but he's speaking today from his home in the Dominican Republic. Eric is an international renowned business speaker, and his varied and highly successful career includes film production, augmented reality gaming, 3D camera engineering, and Hollywood special effects, amongst other things. He also founded Inception Marketing and the Business Freedom Speaking Academy, both of which represent a business ownership methodology that empowers entrepreneurs to own a business that doesn't own them. So, Eric, welcome to Inspired Conversations. It's great to have you with us today. Great to be here. I I appreciate you welcoming me to the show. Thank you. Well, it's just amazing. You have packed so much into your career so far. So for listeners who don't know you, perhaps, uh, even though you are very well known in certain circles, can you take us back to the beginning? How did you get involved in Hollywood and film production and special effects and all of that? Well, that's certainly not the beginning. Um, that's that's definitely about chapter eight, I think. But oh, really, you know, <laughs> you know, unless we count the fact that I was fascinated by movies as a kid. But really, what happened in that case is that a very good friend of mine is a prolific film producer, and he's made about thirty movies. And he was doing a consulting job at this really fantastic studio up in Northern California. And the studio used to be part of Lucasfilm's Industrial Light and Magic. And you know, for many years, it was a closed place; you couldn't get in there. It's not one of these studios that offers tours. So when he offered me the chance to come up and have a tour of the place, I, mean, I happened to be in LA. I'm like, I'm on my way. This is where Empire Strikes Back and Indiana Jones and all these great movies, Pearl Harbor and just count Mission Impossible, countless other movies have had their, had their special effects done. So I went up for a tour. And when I got there, I found that they were trying to raise money. They'd spun out independently from Lucasfilm and they were now trying to raise money for a bunch of projects and 3D equipment and you know other stuff they were doing. And, and I watched one of their investor pitches and it was, Ruth, it was bad. I mean, it really? was really, it was really bad. I'm sitting in the George Lucas theater watching this investor pitch and thinking this is like, you could take the dumbest, you know, investor with billions of dollars who's trying to find ways to give it away. And that wouldn't, it's the pitch still wouldn't have worked. It's funny. Cause I, I then talked to my friend Gavin. I said, you know, that pitch is never going to fly. Like you're, these guys aren't going to raise anything. And he said, would you mind telling them that? And I said, no, I'm not telling them that I'm on a tour. I'm not, I'm not telling them that. And, you know, he convinced me that I should share with them some ideas of how they could, you know, so we sat around this boardroom table and I just sort of gently suggested that maybe a few different me. And by the end of my suggestions, they were asking a million questions. And then they asked the question that changed my life. They said, would you do the pitch for us? Wow. 
And I, I'm like, what? No, I'm on a tour. I'm not, I'm not doing the pitch for you. I don't. And the next thing you know, it's like, in, well, in the movies, you know, the more, you, the more strongly somebody says, we're not doing it, we're not cut two, they're doing it. And I'm, uh, I'm there in the front of the George Lucas Theater doing this pitch to this group of investors. And then one of the investors asked another question that would change my life forever. He said, well, all right, if we invest, will you stay and run the company? I'm on a tour. I don't know what you're talking about. And one thing led to another and um, that, that investor group ended up falling away and I ended up having a conversation with the owners and I ended up becoming the investor group and that's how I got involved in the, in the business. And it was an incredible roller coaster of ups and downs. We got to do the most amazing things working on Avatar, Pirates of the Caribbean, Cowboys and Aliens, and all kinds of Iron Man and fabulous movies and develop incredible technology and do great military work. It was a really interesting few years. And how much of that were you involved in? Or did you just surround yourself with a team that knew what they were doing? I mean, how much personal knowledge do you have of all these things? You know, um, I come from the school of entrepreneurship that says that in order to run a business, you need to understand business, but not necessarily what's going on inside the business. In fact, sometimes understanding what's going on inside the business can be constraining and limiting. And what I mean by that is, you know, I think it was Michael Gerber who gave this example that if somebody was working at a, you know, garage fixing cars, and then one day they decide that they don't like their boss and they want to start their own company and all that kind of stuff then what they'll do is they'll start another garage. They'll start another auto mechanic shop. And then they'll spend their whole time fixing cars and they'll never really work on the strategic deployment of the company, the growth of the company and working on the company. Whereas if that same mechanic instead said, you know, I don't like my boss, I want to start my new business and I'm going to start a business in the dog washing industry. I'm going to wash dogs and I don't know anything about washing dogs. So I'm going to have to hire people to wash the dogs and I'm going to be at my desk working on marketing campaigns, on strategy, on franchising opportunities. Like I'm going to work on the business. In fact, I would even say it, that's a great business to start if you're allergic to dogs because then you won't be tempted at all to work inside the business. So is that, has that been your philosophy all along? Yeah, I think so. I mean, if I think back to starting that first business from day one, I had a very clear intention to not be in the business. In fact, there's something we teach at businessfreedom.com, which is a thing we call a role map, which might be mistaken for an organizational chart, but it's not. It's like an organizational chart, but rather than being built around the people, it's built around the roles. And then once you've built this role map, you then can populate it with people. And so I did this for my company, but of course I was the only employee, right? So I created this role map. There's got to be a CEO. There's got to be a CFO. There's got to, you know, a managing director or a finance director. There's got to be a marketing director. You know, there's got to be all these people. There's got to yeah. be a warehouse manager. And then of course I then had to populate the roles with the names. And of course, you know, that was me. I was ever Everything. So it seems like a pointless exercise, except what I then did was I categorized them. I circled them in colors, red for things I absolutely did not want to be doing like fast. I wanted to get out of those jobs quickly. And then there was this stuff that was green and that was stuff that I was happy to do for a little while, but, but longer term, I didn't want to do it anymore. And then there was blue and that was the final job that I would continue to do until I found somebody who could do it better than me. And that was CEO. And so by doing that, I put myself on notice that I was resigning from those jobs. Like I, I basically was handing myself notice saying, in six weeks, I will no longer be the warehouse manager. In six months, I will no longer be the finance director and so on. And so it was, it was very, uh, uh, I don't know how to put it. It was very stressful at first to really recognize how much I had taken on. But at the same time, when I went through the process, it gave me a really powerful sense of hope because what happens for many people when they're doing a job they don't like to do, 
they do it badly, they procrastinate it, they put it off, they rush it. But when they've given notice that they won't be doing that job long-term, then they tend to be more methodical about it. They tend to be more willing to document it, which of course is all going to be part of the process of hiring somebody and bringing them in to do it. Yeah, no, I can see that. It's a formula for getting yourself out of things that you absolutely hate, which we all have things that we are less good at than others. So yeah. so how did you then go from Hollywood onto the next phase? What, what was the next phase after that? Well, you know, I think that in my life, there have been things that have been phases. For example, working in Hollywood film, you know, special effects production and that sort of stuff. That was definitely a phase. But there, there were other things that weren't phases. They were just things that were always there. You know, like, for example, from 1991, I started getting involved in what we would now call nutritional anthropology. I became fascinated by food, the food industry, food psychology, and all that stuff. And that never went away. It's just that I never regarded it as a business. I regarded it as a hobby. And equally, when, when I, uh, you know, business, I felt the same way. Like, I have never stopped being an entrepreneur. It doesn't matter what business I've owned. Or for two years, I sort of semi-retired and didn't do anything. I was still ultimately an entrepreneur. And what happened toward the end of my time with the film business was I got this, Ruth, I got the strangest phone call. It was like a friend of mine who happened to work for Tony Robbins called me up and he said, uh, Tony wants you to come and speak at this business seminar to teach business and entrepreneurship. Now, at this point, I had not been on stage for three years. So I really thought it was a practical joke. I thought he was kidding. <laughs> and I did. I, I really did. And then he's trying to convince me. He goes, no, 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 no. Tony really wants you to come. And then I started thinking about it and I realized what really had happened was that the speaker they had booked was a good friend of mine and he had passed away. So that obviously made it difficult for him to be there. Yeah, and then they had, yeah, they had no other buddy. They, they, you know, everybody else they approached, it was too short notice and they couldn't do it. And so in the end, it was like they called me not because Tony wanted me, but they had 11 days to go. The event was in Fiji and they couldn't find anybody else. So I said to the guy, Mitch, I said, listen, Mitch, I think I figured out what's going on here. This is not a practical joke. You really want me to do this, but here's what's really going on. You're, you're trying to convince me to do it. And in trying to convince me to do it, you're going to then, if you can get me to say yes, you're then going to go beg Tony and, and beg him to let me do it. And he goes, he goes, yeah, that, that's, that's, yeah, I, I, but I can convince him, he says. And uh, in the end, I agreed to do it and, and, and Tony and I hit it off and I spent the next year and a half touring around doing the business mastery events for the next year and a half and it was life changing and really reminded me of one of my childhood goals and that was to be a teacher. I had always wanted to be a teacher as a kid, but as I grew up and I looked at the way our various cultures around the world, frankly, in my opinion, undervalue and even in many cases disrespect teachers, I just didn't want to be in that industry. But in a weird, ironic twist, here I was stepping into being a teacher and it has been the most fulfilling thing I could do is to get involved in you know, sharing my ideas, my thoughts, my theories, my strategies with people around the world and that's what I've been doing ever since. And what, what were you talking about when you were on stage at Tony's events? What were you teaching? There were two core things. Uh, one was uh, something that we call business freedom. So the idea of building a company that as it gets bigger, you have an increased sense of personal freedom. What happens for many people in the journey of entrepreneurship is that the bigger the company gets, the harder they end up working and the less time they have for their family and the more their health starts to degrade and the less vacations they take. And business freedom argues that entrepreneurship is the ultimate expression of personal freedom. In fact, I would put to you that entrepreneurship, frankly, it's, it's modern day royalty and, it, and it's a seriously honest form of royalty. In other words, you earned it. <laughs> you didn't just inherit right. it. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and so when it's practiced really well, you create more freedom 
for yourself. The bigger your company gets, the more freedom you have. And the more freedom you have, the more you can start other businesses or take on social projects, spend time with your family, you know, work on your health, travel the world, and so on. So I was really focused on teaching those principles. And then the second talk they were having me do at those events was on marketing, uh, what we now call inception marketing. Marketing that is designed not so much to sell, but to stimulate curiosity to make the selling process much easier. Tell us about the Business Freedom Speaking Academy that you set up. What was the idea behind that and, and who were you targeting when you, when you set that up? Well, Ruth, I'll tell you that there's not a single business or product that I've ever created that I didn't create because the clients weren't asking for it. I realized that somebody like Steve Jobs can come along and invent something that people are going to want in the future that doesn't. But the way I've built my businesses has been to listen to the customers and solve their problems. So funny enough, your question is very you know, well-timed relative to inception marketing because accidentally what I did was stimulated a demand for public speaking training. And this is what happened. I was teaching one of my business freedom experiences, a five-day entrepreneur business school that we teach. And at that course, I was talking about the various forms of marketing that exist. And I said that for all the different types of marketing they are, the one that will create the deepest, most long-lasting impression upon a client is face-to-face. -face. If you can get with somebody and you can sit and meet with them, that's going to be the most impactful form of marketing that you're going to create for somebody. And, uh, you know, of course, it's not very scalable is the issue. So when you compare that against internet marketing, it's not very scalable. And so then I mentioned, but it is scalable if you get comfortable with public speaking. I said, if you get comfortable public speaking, you now have the fastest form of networking on the world because you can go to a conference and meet 5,000 people in 15 minutes. And they all, if you make them laugh, you make them cry, you make them think, you make them feel, they will all want to meet and do business with you. That and I just kind of dropped this yeah. truth bomb on the audience. And all of a sudden they're like, do you have a public speaking training? No. <laughs> what would have to happen for you to have one? I'm not doing one. Yeah, but what would have to happen for you to have one? No kidding, by a revolt of the audience because they wouldn't stop asking questions about speaking. I said, guys, we're here to talk about entrepreneurship. So finally, in the end, I offered to do a one-hour bonus session early on the Sunday morning on public speaking. And, and at the end of that hour, they demanded that I created a, a speaking program. And that is where Speaker Nation began. That's how it started. It's an incredible story. And I can testify to the fact that the five-day Business Freedom Speaking Academy idea works because I did it. <laughs> I came to Estonia and did that course with you. Um, now, it was a couple of years ago now. But it was the most profound personal development thing I've ever done. And it was just extraordinary, not only from the speaking point of view, but just the self-confidence and the growth that every person went through on that course was phenomenal. Do you see that every course that you do? Well, it seems kind of self-serving to answer that question, but uh, yeah, I, I do. I, you know, and, and by the way, there's a really big clue in what you said, a really big clue. It's the business freedom, right? It's a business freedom experience you went to. It's an entrepreneur school. But what did you call it? You said it was the deepest personal development program you've been to. I know. Right? And so what I will tell you is, is that every program that I have is ultimately a personal development program. Because if you want to build a great business, you can go study business or if you want to build a good business. But if you want to build a phenomenal life and a phenomenal business, then you have to work on you. And so the same is true at our Speaker Nation events. When we do our Speaking Academy event, people always say afterward, oh my God, this was the most powerful personal development event I've ever went to disguised as a speaking academy. 
Yeah. And that's because if you want to be a good speaker, I can teach you techniques. But if you want to be phenomenal, viral, if you want to be engaging, if you want to have what we call broad spectrum appeal, then you have to work on you. And, I, and it's even the same with WildFit. When we talk about food and nutrition, ultimately, working on food and nutrition is not about teaching people about nutrition. We've seen that fail for decades. What you actually have to do is teach them about themselves. That's a really good point. We'll come back to that after the little break we're going to have. So keep happy, keep inspired, and we'll see you after the break. With inspirational guests from across the world, this is Inspire Radio. Hello and welcome back to Inspired Conversations, where I'm talking to Eric Edneys. And Eric, before the break, we were talking about the Speaking Academy, which has now morphed into something called Speaker Nation. So who is it you're trying to attract to come and do these courses? You know, um, I think that with public speaking, our target audience, and this is a bad marketing practice, but our target audience is basically anybody breathing. You know, it's, it's the fact of the matter is, is that everybody's life is improved by becoming a better communicator, just the way it is. You're a better parent if you're a better communicator. Uh, if you're a student and you're a better communicator, you're going to get more help from your professors. If you're an entrepreneur, you're going to have an easier time managing your staff, raising money, talking to the bank. If you're driving down the road and you get pulled over by the police, you're going to have a better experience if you're a better communicator. So in every way, life is improved by becoming a better communicator. But more than that, anybody wanting to have any kind of influence at all, I don't care if it's social influence, like there's going to be some very interesting environmental conversations that are going to happen when the lockdown ends. And, you know, they, there's political conversations and there's business conversations. And the, the fact is, is humans like stories and they like public speakers. They do. They've liked it for probably 2 million years since we've had fire. And so as a consequence of that, speaking is an incredibly powerful form of influence. And so anybody wanting to affect any kind of attraction or change in the world needs to be good at that. So who are we trying to attract? Well, we aren't trying to attract anybody. They're just you know, we really don't do a great deal of marketing. The events sell out every year and, and you know, we do a little, little bit of marketing. And who do we typically aim for? Well, you know, entrepreneurs are an obvious, an obvious one, but uh, also people with major social projects, like people who are working on improving uh, uh, social conditions, environmental conditions, and that sort of stuff. Politicians are very common clients as well. So it's really anybody who wants to increase their communication skills or increase their influence. What is your next plan then? Where do you go from here? How do you develop that further? Well, today I'm feeling incredibly adventurous, Ruth. I'm going to go into one of the back bedrooms that I haven't been in in six weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. A little lockdown humor for you. You know, right now I have two major things that are on my mind. And one is that seven weeks ago, I uploaded a video to the various social media platforms suggesting that as much as social distancing might be a great idea and washing your hands and disinfecting and all that stuff is important, that what really individual people should be doing for their own individual sake is improving the relationship with food and the food industry and taking care of their body as their last line of defense against something like COVID-19 or frankly, any other disease. Yeah. And when I uploaded that video seven weeks ago, I received quite a lot of backlash, uh, lots of it from doctors even, basically saying, you can't boost your immunity and all this kind of stuff, which is technically correct. I didn't claim to boost immunity. I claimed to boost immune response. And that's a very different thing and a grammatical correction. But I got a lot of backlash from people saying that's not how viruses work and it's not like that. And you know, you, you're just trying to sell WildFit, which is interesting because that video has now had over a million views across the platforms. And I never once mentioned WildFit in the video. Oh, really? 
that's, no. That's interesting, though, that you would have backlash from people. Is it because they feel threatened by you saying that people ought to take care of their nutrition? Because isn't that the basis of health, no matter who you are and where you are and what the circumstances of the world are, whether there's a pandemic or not? Surely it is one of the primary things that people should be doing to look after themselves. Ruth, I think part of the problem is that the germ theory of disease and, and the way we look at uh, pathogens and viruses is morphing and changing and doing so quickly. I will tell you that I had a conversation with one of the very smartest people I've ever met in my life, probably an IQ of about 160. And 15 or 20 years ago, we were discussing Ebola. And I suggested that, what, that somebody's baseline level of health might help them. And they said, that's not how viruses work. A virus simply comes in, it has a mortality rate. If its mortality rate like Ebola is something in the realm of 50 to 80%, then it's a random 50 to 80% of people that are killed by that. And that never worked for me. I did not agree with that. And so when I uploaded the video, I was challenging that idea. And so many medical professionals jumped on the thread and started attacking me and suggesting that I was just being sensationalistic and trying to sell nutrition programs. But of course, what we've now seen over the last six weeks is increasing volumes of data suggesting that what we now refer to as lifestyle diseases are actually at cause. In fact, many of what we consider to be COVID deaths now are actually a situation where COVID was simply contributory. In other words, I'm in the car with a very good friend of mine who happens to be obese, uh, type 2 diabetic, hypertensive, and we both suffer the same injuries. Well, he passes away and I don't. His cause of death, his what they call underlying cause of death, will be a car accident. But the truth is what may have really killed him was hypertension or obesity or diabetes. And, and we're now seeing that that is absolutely the case with COVID-19, that we're talking about 88 to 90 percent of people that are succumbing to disease or facing serious hospitalization have been damaged by the food industry. And, and we're waking up to that now. And I think that's when you ask what's next, what's next for me is to go even deeper into this conversation around the world to do what I can to radically improve people's relationship with food, change their buying patterns, because in changing their buying patterns, we will change what they make. We'll change what they put on the shelf. And also working to change legislation and regulation around the world. Ruth, here's an interesting thought exercise for you and everybody who's listening. When we now see that to die from COVID under the age of 60, you pretty much have to be obese. That's pretty much the way it is. When we now see that even in the older age, it's not simply being old that kills you because there's been many people in their 90s and even past 100 that have survived COVID. Yeah. You need to be sick to die from COVID. And you need to be sick from what we call a lifestyle disease. And I just want to stop on that for a moment because I hate that expression because frankly, the term lifestyle disease is a manipulative spin designed to shift the blame from the government and the food industries onto the consumer so that the consumer feels that it's their fault that yeah. they have a lifestyle disease. Mm. It is not. It is not their fault. Anybody who's obese, not your fault. Type 2 diabetic, not your fault. Any of those diseases, not your fault. It is the fault of a disastrous and broken food food production, food manufacturing, and food marketing industry combined with lobbying that's affecting our education and legislation. It is not anybody's fault. But when we take all this into account, Ruth, here's the thought exercise. What would have happened if COVID-19, however it came to be, whatever theory anybody believes, what if it happened in the 60s? And what I would suggest is that there was not enough diabetes or obesity or hypertension for us to even notice COVID-19. Because 50 to 80% of people who get it, even in today's state of health, are asymptomatic. They don't even develop symptoms. So in the 1960s, we wouldn't even, we would still think Corona was a beer. 
I know two of my daughters have had the virus. They are in the States at the moment, uh, staying with friends of the family. And they're young, they're 20 and 21. So they were a little bit ill for a couple of weeks, but they bounced back and they're right as rain. So I think the health issue is a massive, massive issue. I think you're right. But for people that don't know what WildFit is and your journey into WildFit, tell us about that. How did WildFit happen and, and what is it? Well, you know, I, I think the best way to put it is that I went through a really serious health recovery of my own. Uh, when I was 21 years old, I had spent probably almost a decade, maybe six or seven years or a little bit more, visiting doctors and specialists trying to solve the various ailments that I had, including chronic sinus infections, chronic throat infections, chronic digestive problems, cystic acne, headaches. And that was just my life. And you know, the funny thing about kids is that when they're in chronic pain, they just kind of delete it. They numb it. And that's what I was. I didn't think of myself as sick. I just thought of myself as me. But in the end, I still was visiting doctors to try to alleviate some of the symptoms. And, and I, I, I really need to say this. I, I really have a great deal of respect for the medical industry when it comes to things like trauma or dealing with emergencies and that kind of stuff. But when it comes to preventative medicine, frankly, I think most doctors are the last person you want to go to. And I think many of them would agree with me. They're not designed for preventative medicine. In fact, it is absolutely not required in any medical school that I know of to study nutrition to become a doctor. It's not it's even required. It's crazy, isn't it? Oh, it's insane. Yeah. And so in my case, I, uh, some friends of mine uh, gathered around. They introduced me to Tony Robbins, and there was this fascinating challenge that was thrown down for me, and that was, well, why don't you eat more of this and eat less of that for 30 days, and let's see how you do. And 30 days later, I had lost 35 pounds. All of my symptoms were gone. My doctor had ordered my tonsils out because, you know, they're useless. They are not useless. They are there by design. I don't care if you believe in God evolution or some combination of the two. Those tonsils were put there for a reason. And my doctor wanted to take them out because they were chronic. And basically, he was saying if I didn't take them out, they'd be like that for the rest of my life. Oh, and by the way, they might be the cause of all of my problems. No, they weren't. Food was the cause of all of my problems because when I changed my diet, I completely changed my physical body. I, Ruth, I went to go visit my mom in South Africa. I got off the plane, walked down the stairs into the arrivals area, and my mom looked straight at me and didn't see me. Really? Didn't even see me. But I had a girlfriend at the time that had bright red, okay, strawberry blonde in case she's listening, but she had bright red hair and, uh, and, and my mom saw her because of her hair like immediately and then did a double take and look back at me and realized it was me. That's how substantially I had changed. And by the way, losing 35 pounds wasn't really the biggest change. The biggest change was when you have chronic infection and inflammation, it changes the shape of your face. And so I had puffiness around my nose and eyes all the time. I just was that kid. And that is the beginning of WildFit right there because I started asking doctors, including my own uncle, who was an orthopedic surgeon. I asked him in all the years, 10 years of medical school, how much of that time did you spend studying nutrition? And he said, None. And what was amazing to me is he'd never thought of it until I asked the question because he didn't just go, oh, none. He went, uh, uh, none. Wow. And it was the first time he'd realized the problem there. And so now, Ruth, what happens now, this is where it all speeds up a little, is that I, I basically became really curious and I recognized that, it, that my health was my responsibility. In my opinion, as somebody whose life has been saved by doctors quite a few times, I, I mean that literally, I seven weeks ago had an emergency appendectomy in the middle of the backwoods of Africa. Uh, thank God there was a surgeon there who could help. In uh, Africa? I was, yeah, yeah. I was... Uh, <laughs> 
I was lit on fire when I was 18 years old and had to have my arm rebuilt from skin, removed from my legs. Thank God for doctors. Don't, don't let any of this be anti-doctor. Let it be anti a system that allows doctors to become doctors without studying food. And so I decided if doctors weren't going to study food, I was going to do it. And so I started studying food and that led me down the path of human history and evolution, nutritional anthropology. And in about 1995 or so, I wrote an article called The Human Diet. And the article proposed a concept. And the concept was that if every organism on earth has a diet, then the word diet actually means lifestyle. It doesn't mean temporary alteration to your eating patterns in order to achieve some short-term goal like fitting into that outfit for the summer. It doesn't mean that. It means lifestyle. When somebody goes on a diet, they're actually going off their diet. That's what's really going on. They're going off their normal lifestyle. And so I recognized that, proposed that if every living organism on earth had a diet, that maybe sapiens did too. And that the best way for us to unlock what that would be would be to look at our archaeological and anthropological history. And that's what I started doing. And that wouldn't have been enough. If I'd done that, I would have brought some great information to the fray, no question about it. But what I learned from my clients, they would come to me with problems, often at the business freedom experience. They would see all my energy. I don't do jet lag. I don't get sick. Like, how are you pulling all that off? And then I would do a, a little chat on nutrition. I would just give it to them as a free bonus as part of the program. I probably did it at the one you were at. But what happened was they wouldn't change. Like I would give them the recipe. I would say, don't eat this, eat more of that. And they wouldn't change. And that's when I realized in order to create real change in people from a food perspective, I was going to have to apply the same principles that I do in my speaking academy and my business freedom academy. I was actually going to have to work at the transformative level to change people. People will ultimately give in and eat what they want. What I was going to have to do is change what they want. And so six years ago, I crafted a very carefully designed program that I would argue is the first sort of attempt at what we might now call food psychology. And I designed an incremental system where people would go through a week by week education transformation process. And I tested it with eight people and it worked on all eight of them, which is statistically not likely considering that 1% of people succeed at diets. And then I did another eight and another eight and it just took off from there. One day, a friend of mine did the program, a guy by the name of Paul Sheely, famous author in America. He wrote to me and he goes, um, I've told some of my clients about this, but there's no website. They can't buy it. And I'm like, yeah, it's a hobby. I don't have a website. It's not a business. It's just a hobby. And he goes, well, you better build a website because I want to tell my whole network about it. And up to that point in time, maybe 100 people a year were buying it through our business freedom experience. That was it. It was a little hobby. That's it. It was just a hobby. But did you employ the services of a psychologist to create that program? Nope. I just, I just did the research. You know, I did speak to some psychologists about it, but their thinking was way too old school. They, they were like, you know what? You can't change somebody that fast. You, you know, you got to put them on a couch for a long time. You know, like, I know I want to change them in, I want to change them in three months. I want to get this done and dusted now. So what I did look at is I of course looked at what Richard Bandler and John Grinder did around neuro-linguistic programming. And I looked at uh, hypnotic language patterns like Erickson and speech patterns. I looked at the power of storytelling to write directly to the subconscious. I looked at the power of minimum opportunities to fail, which is all part of this technology we now have called behavioral change dynamics, which is, is the underlaying of every program that I design. And, and you know, it works. So when, when Paul told his network about it, when we put up our website, it was amazing. 200 people signed up in a few days. We sold 100 the whole year before. And then that happened again a few times. And then one day, Vishen Lakiani from Mind Valley did the program. 
and because he was a friend of mine and, and he came in into the program and then he put pictures of his own body transformation. He was, he was not overweight or anything. He just transformed his body completely. He did, and yeah. he told his network about it. And then 1,100 people signed up in a week and you know the rest is history. We've now served over 20,000 people in 130 countries. The Canadian government you know, gave me a medal on the, on the Senate floor for improving the quality of people's lives and here we are. And so oh, that is what's next great. for me is to take it Wow, that's amazing. Well, you've got 8 billion of us to work on. So <laughs> there's plenty of people out there who could use your wisdom and your, uh, your psychology. What is the main thrust, if you like, of Wild Fit? What do you need to eat and what do you need to eat less of? Well, you see, Ruth, if I did that, then I would just be playing into the normal diet world of giving people rules. It's no different than if I, if I said to you, oh, well, hold your breath. You can only use willpower to hold your breath for maybe two minutes unless you've really been training to do it longer, right? And then your body will take over. In fact, that's so true that you can be holding your breath underwater and eventually your body will try to breathe even though you consciously know you can't breathe water. That's how powerful the body's will is compared to the conscious mind's will. The body's willpower is much stronger than the conscious mind's willpower. The, the conscious mind's willpower can win in for minutes. The body will win the long race. And so if I simply go, well, it's very obvious, Ruth. People should eat a wide variety of seasonally available fruits and vegetables. They should eat the best quality and, and the most ethically raised meats, fish, egg, and poultry that they can get. They should eat limited amounts of nuts and seeds, and they should eliminate processed foods and GMO and artificial sweeteners and all that. I can tell you all that. Yeah. But the trouble is, is that now listeners of yours, they'll hear that tomorrow, they won't follow the rule, and then their self-esteem will slip slightly. Mm. That's where diets fail. They give you rules with maximum opportunities to fail. Then somebody like cheats, their self-esteem takes a dip. The lower your self-esteem, the less power or willpower you have, the more your body will take over, the more you will cheat, the more your self-esteem will be damaged. And then pretty soon you feel like you failed the diet. Ruth, nobody has ever failed a diet. Diets fail people. Right. Yeah. No, I, I get that. But I would encourage if, if you are struggling with, with your nutrition, then check Eric's site out. Where can they find WildFit, Eric? Getwildfit.com. Right. Getwildfit.com. It is definitely, definitely something that you should do if you're in any way concerned about your health and nutrition. I've done it myself and it is phenomenal. I've fallen Ruth, off the wagon a so bit. Much. <laughs> <laughs> I've fallen off the wagon a bit, I have to say. But um, the basic principles are are fantastic and it really does make you reevaluate everything that you put in your mouth believe me it really does and by the way ruth you know the funny thing is is that and I, and it's been a while since you did it so our languaging has changed a little bit we don't have a wagon we don't have a wagon and we don't have approved foods we're about freedom and so what that really means is there are times when you are making exceptions to your own rules and expressing your own sense of personal freedom but here's my question are you more conscious of food than you were before? Absolutely. So you haven't fallen off any wagon at all. You just occasionally make unconscious decisions and you know how to bring them back. Have you gone all the way back to the way things were before? No, no, I haven't. No. So think about that. The average listener might hear you go, I've fallen off the wagon a little bit and they go, oh, so it's just like every other diet. They might feel like that. But that's because your definition of falling off the wagon and their definition of falling off the wagon is very different. Your definition is, well, I don't always do exactly the way I want. and Maybe I should go into spring more often than I do, right? Yeah. Their definition of falling off the wagon is, I ate an extra large pizza, drank it down with a Coke and finished off some ice cream. Like they go all the way back. 
And that's because diets are designed to beat up their self-esteem to get them to buy another diet and the next thing and the next thing. Yeah, no, I get it. I'm a big advocate of WildFit. It works. It works. I'm a great believer. But tell me how Africa came into this, because I know that you did a lot of research with an African tribe that formed a lot of what you put into the WildFit program. So how did that all happen? It, Ruth, it's kind of funny. I um, The one area of social media that I still manage completely for myself is Instagram. I really enjoy Instagram and people write to me and I record voice messages back to them whenever I can. And so this woman the other day, she wrote to me and she said, so she kind of asked a similar to what you just asked. It was a different question, but similar. She goes, so Eric, I mean, tell me about your first ever trip to Africa. And I wrote to her and I said, well, I don't remember much of it because it was in the delivery room. I was born there. <laughs> so <laughs> that, that's how Africa came into it. I came into it in Africa. Oh. But how Africa became part of the WildFit story is that my great-grandfather, my father's grandfather, Thomas Dreyer, was a zoologist and archaeologist. And he discovered the Florespad skull, which until recently was considered to be the oldest Homo sapiens skull ever found. And it was, uh, it's, a, it's been carbon dated at 259,000 years. So that kind of dates humans. And I think there's been a more recent sapiens discovery at 300,000 years. So that's about the time that we recognize humans to have been around. That's where Africa first comes into it because that's where we were. That's where our, our evolution started. Right. And then where Africa re-enters the fray is that I used to do these leadership programs where I would take people up Kilimanjaro. And one day coming down the mountain, our logistics partner, you know, they, they came to me and said, hey, listen, we Googled you and we see this whole wildfit thing or, you know, the, your nutritional anthropology thing. Would you like to go visit with some Bushmen? And actually it predated wildfit. I was just, I was still writing back then about the human diet or the wild diet as I called it back then. And he said, listen, th there's a chance we could track down some Bushmen for you to visit. And what he means by Bushmen, if anybody's ever seen the movie, The Gods Must Be Crazy, we're talking about people like that, hunter-gatherer nomads that don't wow. keep homes, they don't keep money and livestock and stuff. And of course, I agreed immediately. We spent the next few weeks crashing through the bushes with machetes, trying to find them. And eventually, we met the Hadza people about, this is 10 years ago now, and um, it was life-changing. I mean, it changed my perspective on so many things, relationships, parenting, food, exercise, psychology. I've been visiting them now for 10 years. In fact, right before the lockdown, I was with the Hadza people for two weeks and, uh, and then came home to find the world was shutting down. Wow. And what can they teach you? These people, as you say, they're living as our ancestors did millions of years ago, probably. So what have they been able to teach you? You know, I think a lot of people have this idea that like what we think of as native peoples or Aboriginal peoples have some great earthly wisdom that's somehow better than ours or what have you. And I, I'm not a big fan of that idea because frankly, every one of those peoples has worked incredibly hard to create extinctions in the countries they live in, just like we do. The difference is they do it more slowly because they didn't have guns. But by observing the Hadza in particular, what we're able to do is get a glimpse at what most of our life, most of our history may have been like. We can't say for sure that it's the same, but we can say that the way they live is likely significantly closer to the lifestyles of our ancestors than our life is today. In fact, there's a principle that I've been writing a lot about and speaking about that we call the evolution gap. And the evolution gap is, as I define it, is this gap between 
our physical, psychological evolution at a genetic level and the pace of change of our social structures and our technology. So 30,000 years ago, we ended the period of parallel evolution where ultimately we evolved in response to the natural conditions around us. We started farming and the minute we did that, we lifted ourselves out of the natural selection game to some degree and we got to a place where we were having to live with different realities than our genetics were built for. So for example, if you look what's going on right now with COVID-19, you have a whole lot of people living with pretty consistent levels of cortisol in their system. And we weren't really ever meant to live in a state of fear all the time. When we live in a state of fear, we actually divert resources away from our immune system. And the reason is, is that if you're being attacked by a lion, right, what you want is all your energy to be on your fight, flight, or freeze response. You don't really yeah. care about pathogens in that moment. In fact, it's so severe that if, if you have a runny nose from allergies or you've got diarrhea or something, and then suddenly there's a lion there, everything will shut down. It'll just shut down. Like your whole immune system will stop to give you the strength you want. And one of the problems we have today is that people, because we live in the safest times in the history of times, people don't understand real danger. And so they get triggered by stuff that isn't dangerous. And that's a result of the evolution gap. That's, that's as a result of having old software and old hardware that was designed for the daily threats against you. When now somebody can get a visa bill in the mail and go, oh my God, and they, can, they feel like it's going to hurt them. Well, it isn't. And so when we go see the Hadza, we're able to get a sense of what the world was like when our software and our hardware evolved, maybe. And, and so there's really neat things like parenting is fascinating. Uh, I, I sat years ago around the fire and there was a small child of about 18 months walking toward the fire. And I'm, I, I, I'm like sitting there getting nervous. Like the kid's walking yes. toward the fire. Like, why is the kid walking toward the fire? Somebody stop the kid. Somebody stop the kid. And I don't really want to stop the kid myself because it's not my kid. And then I talked to the translator about it and he goes, yeah, they're talking about it right now. The two adults over there talking about it. And here's the conversation. Oh, look, little Jimmy's walking toward the fire. Okay, his name wasn't Jimmy, but <laughs> little Jimmy's walking toward the fire. And uh, has he not done that before? No, he's never done that. Oh, that's a shame. <laughs> and they were just going to let him do it. And of course, he'll only do it once. Ah, oh, but aren't there lots of scarred kids walking around? Yeah, there are. Many of them have little scars and blisters on their fingers and stuff. No, nobody jumps into the fire and singes their whole body. I mean, come on, Ruth, have you not ever touched the red element of your stove or touched oh, an iron yeah. and burnt yourself? Oh, yeah. And then, and then it's a long time before you make that mistake again, isn't it? Yeah. And that's the idea is that they allow their children to grow up. They allow their children to make mistakes because in their world, if they didn't, if they bubble wrap their children and then sent them out into the world with hyenas and lions and stuff, it would be lethal. Their kids need to be tough. And so they, they regard children. They don't believe they own, we don't own our children. They don't believe that children are even children. They're just diminutive adults. And so they'll help them when they need help with physical strength and size and reaching things, but they don't tell them how to live. And I'm not suggesting we can completely pull that off with our kids, but you know, my son called me up a couple of years ago and he wanted to buy a new car and he wanted to buy like a 1983 Jaguar, which look for as much respect as I have for British engineering and car <laughs> manufacturing, a 1983 Jaguar is not ideal. I think we can all agree to that. Yeah. Not reliable. Nope. And he wanted to buy it. And you know, what would a normal parent do? A normal parent would say, Jimmy, don't go to the fire. But I didn't do that. I said, Daniel, I think you should buy that Jaguar. And he goes, you do? Nobody else thinks I should. I know, but I think you should. Why? I said, because I think it's sexy. I think girls are going to like it. I think it's going to help you socially. I think it's going to be a great spiritual experience for you. And he goes, what do you mean spiritual experience? <laughs> and I said, well, girls are going to like the car, but they're going to have to come sit in the driveway because you're not going to be able to afford the gas. And it's going to break down and be incredibly expensive to repair, but it'll still look cool in the driveway. Now, of course, 
I am dissuading him, but not by pushing him away from it, by pushing him to it. And, and I, I honestly, I kept saying, I, I support you completely. You should go ahead and do it. And in the end, he didn't, but I wasn't wrong. And in the end, what I said to him is, Dan, he goes, why would you push me to do this if you think it's going to be so expensive in the gas and so on? And I said, because Daniel, there's a few mistakes that I've made in my life that have cost me tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of dollars that had I made that same mistake with less zeros, I might not have had to make the bigger one. So I would rather you bought this car right now, screwed up, lost $3,000, had huge regret about it. So you don't have to lose 30 on the next mistake. And he's like, okay, I get it. <laughs> so, you know, that, that's part of the idea that the Hadza have is that, you know, you don't own your children. It's been wonderful talking to you, Eric, and I could talk to you all afternoon, but I'm sure you have other <laughs> things to do. Um, but what I would like you to do just before we sign off is I, I'd love you to tell one of your amazing stories because Eric is renowned for whenever he appears on stage, you have so many stories and each one better than the last. So just give people a little taster of one of your stories that you use on stage. If you can imagine what it was like for me at 17 or 18 years old to be listening to Tony Robbins on, on Ruth, you and I remember, but not everybody listening knows what a tape was. <laughs> oh, I do. I do. <laughs> but there I was listening to Tony Robbins on tapes. And, um, and here I am so many years later getting this call that I got to come and speak on stage with Tony and it's in Fiji at his resort. And I don't really do starstruck. Like I, I used to run a movie studio. We had Robin Williams coming in to shoot PSAs. I've met many celebrities. I've met Bill Gates and John. Templeton. I like, I don't really do the starstruck thing, but Tony had had a big impact on my life. I mean, he really at 17 or 18 years old, he became a major influence. And I would say that a lot of the way I get to live today is because of things I learned from him. Doesn't mean he's perfect. None of us are. I'm just saying meeting him was an honor. And so here I am going off to do this event. And, and um, then I find out some things like he's actually not that happy that I'm coming to speak because he's never seen me speak. Well, guess what? I hadn't done any speaking in three years. So he, he's not that happy about it. And it's a private event for about 150 incredibly wealthy Chinese people. And so he tells his team, look, I'm not introducing this guy because I like if he bombs, I don't want to be anywhere near it. <laughs> so they decide that the Chinese translator is going to do the introduction for me. And um, of course, you know, any good speaker knows they should send the introduction. Don't let them make it up. Let them read a script like they got it. The, the introduction really sets up the energy for the room. So we had sent one. And the Chinese translator had translated it over to Chinese and was preparing to do it. Then Tony's team come and get me and they go, Tony would like to meet you briefly in the hallway before you go on stage. So I go out in the hallway and man, he is tall. And so I'm in the hallway getting a neck ache looking up at him. And he says to me, he goes, how are you feeling about your presentation? And I'm like, well, you know, it's 11 days notice. You want me to use somebody else's slides? It's less than ideal conditions. And he goes, well, you could be a lot more confident. <laughs> I'm like, whoa, hold on. I said, Tony, the reason I'm here and none of your other speakers are is they're all business operators and I'm a business owner. My business doesn't need me to be there. And that's his language, by the way. So okay. it, showed that, it showed him I knew his stuff, but it showed him I had confidence. And he was like, well, all right then. And so then he changed his mind. And in the meantime, he tells his team, he goes, I kind of like that guy. I think I'll introduce him myself. Where's his introduction? But it turns out that they'd like thrown out my introduction because the Chinese translator had translated the Chinese. So Tony's like, well, no problem. Just translate it back. So, you know, anybody who has done any language study knows that you cannot do that game. Like you translate from one language to another and simply translate it back and stuff gets definitely lost in translation. So what ends up happening is the bio says, Eric's not really a motivational speaker. He's really more of an entrepreneur. He started his first business and he sold it nine 
years later, and then he went off and did these other things and blah, blah, blah. So there's this key phrase that I sold my business nine years later. The translation gets all messed up and Tony goes out on stage and he goes, you guys, I'm so excited to introduce this next speaker. He started his first business when he was only nine years old. <laughs> we had a big belly laugh when he realized that I didn't start my first business at nine years old. You know, Ruth, there's a kind of follow-up to that because one of the things we teach at Speaker Nation is that you should have what we call an F15, that you should know your beginning. If you really 100% know how you're going to start your talk, you feel a lot more confident and it helps to get rid of some of the nerves and so on. Yep. And so I, whenever I was speaking at Tony's events, I would actually tell that story as part of my F15 because it was a guaranteed laugh every time. And no kidding, I'm, on, I'm, I'm backstage getting ready to go on stage and I think it's Scott Harris is the MC, and this time he's introducing me rather than Tony introducing me. And he starts introducing me and no kidding, Ruth, he told my story. He told that story right before I went on stage. And suddenly oh. I didn't even, oh my God, it was a very tense moment for me, I can tell you. Oh my goodness, so what did you do when you came out? What did you start with? I just switched to another story. I don't even remember which, but it worked. I can tell you that it worked. I think it might've been, all right, I'll share one more with you. It's not even a story, it's a bit of a joke, but I use this one sometimes. I said, you know, before the seminar here, I was outside going for a walk and this cute little dog came running up and it was barking at me, and, but it was, bark was weird. It was like, like they, were, they had laryngitis or something. And then, and this older couple comes walking along and it, it's clearly their dog from the dog's behavior. And I'm like, Hey, uh, you know, is your dog okay guys? And, and the woman says, Oh yeah, yeah. He's totally okay. We just had him debarked. We, we just had, I said, what? She goes, yeah, it's a surgery. We couldn't train him not to bark. And so we just debarked him. And I got to tell you, that does not sit well with me. It is super easy to train a dog not to bark. And it's not right. That's it. I, I really didn't like it. And so I turned to the husband. I'm like, were you okay with this? And he goes, I didn't have an opinion. <laughs> it's been an absolute joy speaking to you, Eric. We wish you well in your mission to make the world a, a happier, healthier place. Thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Stay happy, stay inspired. With inspirational guests from across the world, this is Inspire Radio. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. Maybe you would like to join us as a guest on Inspire Radio. Maybe you'd like to feature on our Inspire Radio directory. If you would and you'd like to get in touch, then simply enter your details on the contact page at inspireradio.co.uk. Remember to give our Facebook page a like as well, at Inspire Radio UK. And once again, thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast from Inspire Radio. And have the best day you possibly can. Be happy, be inspired. With feel-good music by day, relaxing music by night. This is Inspire Radio. Be happy, be inspired.